I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast, where we will discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, I'm joined by Michael Ellison, president of Corporate Insight. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. Glad to be here. So, Mike, your company provides a service that, as an analyst, this is near and dear to my heart. And that's competitive benchmarking. Can you talk a little bit about how Corporate Insight got started? Sure. It's actually my dad who started the company. So we're a family business historically. And it was back in the early 90s. And he had recently hung out his own shingle, left the marketing research world. So you know, was originally doing focus groups and surveys and, and so forth. And he was working on a project for a financial services company. And they'd asked to see if they can get competitive statements from some of the competition. They wanted to benchmark their statement relative to what the rest of the street was doing. And he said, you know, the only way you can really do that is by having accounts at these firms. And he said, tell you what, why don't you guys help me open up accounts across all the street and I'll, I'll get you the statements you need. And they said, well, no, we can't really do that. But if you did that on your own and syndicated it, we'd buy into it. And so right. that was, he launched Broker Monitor with that. And literally out of his attic, working with probably about a dozen firms at the time. And as he was getting these statements and stuff and sort of scanning them and, and sharing them with the clients, he realized I can't just send a whole binder of statements. He needed to put a report on top of it. So he, he wrote the Broker Monitor report, and, and that's kind of how we got going. So how has the offering evolved from that point? Because it feels like you have a number of monitors yeah. now that clients are buying into. Yeah. And so what happened was, you know, I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek say, you know, he's, he's doing this probably about four or five years on his own. And then, you know, Al Gore invented the internet. Right. And as it happened, he started getting a lot of calls from clients saying, you know, what's so-and-so doing on the website? What's the website experience like? You know, what can you do? And I was working elsewhere at the time, and he had called me and, and said, you know, I think we've got a, an opportunity here to, you know, really expand what I'm doing and want to see if I want to come on board. And so I did, and I helped launch at the time what we called eMonitor, which is actually still around. And the focus of eMonitor was, again, looking at the, the brokerage website and what that client experience was like from a, you know, capability standpoint. And this is, again, I mean, you got to remember what websites looked like in 1996, right. right? It was not a pretty scene compared to what we have now. But we figured out a way to package the website, and, you know, in, in terms of the content, the capabilities, and write weekly and monthly reports around how the sites are changing over time and then doing monthly best practice reports, benchmarking various aspects of the customer experience. It was, uh, you know, things like the trade ticket, charting capabilities, stock screeners at the time, and also looking at the offline experience and what's the statement's doing? What are the newsletters like? And, and things like that. And today, I've got to imagine that a lot of that is how, what is the experience from brokerage to brokerage or provider to provider, independent of a designated e-service or physical delivery? It's evolved from just kind of that channel focus into if for firms to deliver successful customer experience, they need to have orchestrate all channels into a nice symphony, if you will. And so we're able to look at not only the you know, online experience, the phone-based experience, the call center experience, but we've done branch mystery shops. You know, we go and do account opening studies. So we do try to get that entire ecosystem of what the customer experience might look like. It's such a smart approach given that every client meeting that we're in, it's what are our competitors doing? It's one of the first questions, whether it's how are they doing on paperless adoption rates and how does that compare to what we're doing and what can we be doing better? What best practices can we take from that? So I think that the approach that you've taken to 
coming into this market with competitive intelligence is, is really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you can't, it's hard to derive and devise a strategy without knowing where you are right now. You know, you, you can't, um, it's one thing to figure out on a map where you want to go, but if you don't know where you are, you can't plan how to get there. So our work, I think, has really been able to do is help the industry understand where they are right now, provide insights into you know, how to get to the next level. And as the industry has evolved, I mean, every time we make a set of recommendations, six months later, the goalposts have changed in, right. in some respects. So it's kind of fun as an analyst because you're never out of work. But you know, we've been really following the financial services industry for 20 years now in terms of what the evolution of the digital experience is like. You know, we've expanded not just in brokerage. I mean, brokerage and wealth management is our kind of history and our legacy. But shortly after launching eMonitor, we expanded into banking, mutual funds, credit cards. Now we're in retirement, we're going you know, in healthcare, you know, so we're taking that model of what the true customer experience, not survey-based customer experience, but actually what's happening down on the runway level to client and to what's happening, you know, in the day-to-day interactions with the firms. And we're able to write about that and, and point and provide some guidance into where our clients need to go to improve it. How objective is that approach? Can you talk through how your scoring methodology is built? Yeah. One of our tenants is we try to be as transparent as possible in, in our research. And so every time in our benchmarking reports, we talk about, you know, we, we set up a framework. And here's the lens through which we're looking at this particular topic. And we provide details on, on what the actual framework is that, that we're using at any given time. So you might disagree with our assessment, but you at least understand how we got there. We try to make sure that it's, it's not our clients aren't thinking we just woke up in a bad mood and gave somebody a bad grade or, or something right. like that. And what we have actually done then when we built the monitors, and this is just kind of an ongoing research service, we then started getting you know questions from clients well, that's great. You know, that's very helpful. But I need the overall view of how our site ranks relative to my peer group. And so we launched what we now call our, our website audit. And in this, we've built a very sort of transparent framework as to what goes into the analysis. So we rate the sites on anywhere, probably about 350 different attributes. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, yes, they have it or no, they don't. It's how well do they implement that. And one of the things that we wanted to do to make sure that all our analysts are approaching the research through the same lens is we built a what we call our, our grading criteria. So when we're assigning a you know, poor, fair, good, or excellent grade, it has to meet – each step has to meet a certain criteria. And we share that with our clients so they understand, okay, this is what makes up a poor grade. This is what makes up an excellent grade yep. and so forth. Yep. So we really try to you – know, that's with that, we can quantify the qualitative but do it transparently. And I think that that also – sets those clients up for success in the future because they know exactly where they're weak yep. and they know where they can make the appropriate investments to improve their score. Exactly, exactly. So does that happen that clients will then, they'll get scored as a, a C compared to the Bs and As that are out there and, and then they'll say, can you help us move the needle or do you feel like that's not your role? Yeah, so we can but we don't get into, say, the coding and the actual design. Work. Right. We, don't, we don't feel that, you know, we've worked with designers and, and they don't necessarily think they should be grading their own stuff and we don't feel like we should mm-hmm. be designing things that we're grading. But we do, yeah, absolutely. So we can give the clients the research and they want to understand, all right, what, are the, what gaps do they need to close and how do they need to close it? We'll provide our recommendations. And then we can either work with the designer team or the whatever team's kind of implementing the changes to give them guidance along the way. Right. How has that 
scoring methodology evolved with the evolution of the market over the last 20 years? Do you go back and review different scoring criteria or create new categories as the market evolves? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an evolutionary thing. And, and frankly, the criteria that we use in an audit this year is going to be different from the criteria we used last year. Right. We've got to mention the goalpost changing, right? And it, it just, it happens. And, and we get clients who will every 12 to 18 months come back because they recognize that you know, just because they might have ranked three out of 12 this year, there's been a lot of innovation in the market. So they need to come back and sort of reassess where they are based on the changes they've made, but where, where the peer groups change or new entrants into the market, right? We've got the, you know, the advent of the robo-advisors over the past couple of years have really driven a design philosophy down into the mainstream brokerage firms and changed the interface of you know, the website and the mobile platform. So our criteria and our analysis changes accordingly. Right. I think, again, from my background as an analyst, I always love to see my fingerprint on things out in the right. market, even if it, was, it wasn't a direct interaction with that provider, but I knew that they took my insight to heart and adjusted their message or latched onto a, a concept or topic. I would think that that's a similar satisfaction for you and your team just to see the evolution of those communications. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we... Part of the analysis, part of the service that we provide is we go through the sites every week looking at how they've changed and, and then we'll write recommendations based on the best practice report. And every now and then we'll go through and see a new change to the website, which was based on something we might have written about two months ago with particular recommendations. Very satisfying. Analysts really enjoy that. Right. Are there clients that consistently just score really poorly and make no effort to improve the, the look and feel of that experience? That's a loaded question. <laughs> Without naming names, there are certainly firms out there that have maybe strategically underplayed the importance of the digital environment and have made probably not as many investments as they probably should have. Right. How's that for a diplomatic answer? But even, you know, even that's starting to change. And I, I think we're, we're really seeing the industry understand the importance of digital. And, and I don't even mean the website anymore. Now it's going to mobile. I mean, at some point, the mobile platform could very well overtake the desktop digital environment in terms of importance. Right, right. I wonder also in some of our discussions on investor communications or um, or otherwise, there's a – the discussion often goes toward I just need to deliver this communication. It's a regulatory requirement mm -hmm. and I don't care about the experience or the look and feel because either I don't value how much the consumer is actually looking at that or it's just – it doesn't change my bottom line one way or the other. And so I wonder if that plays in, in terms of just checking the box of having delivered. We, we've actually, in some cases, seen almost the opposite of that, where you're right. It, there's a regulatory document. It could be, you know, the welcome kit that has your client agreement in it, right? But we've actually had clients come to us and say, I take 20 pages to say what my competitor says in three. Right. Why? And they use that research to go back then to their compliance department and say, look, we can't give our clients 20 pages of legalese to go through. They're not going to read it. This is what our competition is doing. Sometimes it just takes somebody to you know, take the first step and then the industry will follow. I think that is a topic that comes up often with legal and compliance departments and how rigid they interpret the regulations right. really having an impact on how a company could reimagine that communication yep. because some just are in that mode of this is how we've always done it and we've never gotten in trouble 
So we're going to continue to do it this way right. and not create trouble. Right. And I don't know if you remember, this might have been six, seven years ago, there's this movement called Towards Plain English, I think it was called. And nothing really became of that. You know, it, it, some firms started doing some innovative stuff with their statements and, and some of the compliance documentation to get it a little more engaging for customers to read. But I think probably the advent, you know, financial crisis and stuff put a backseat to some of that. But I think certainly we've seen statements over the years evolve because that's mission-critical information to a a client's account. I think firms come to us a lot and say, well, how do we actually go about improving on the design, making it more user-friendly, making it more easily understandable? And then they also have to, particularly the the ones that have an advisor relationship, they need to balance that with what the advisor wants to show on it. So it gets a little interesting. And how far are we from getting to that summary page that's delivered to then have a complement of everything else that somebody might need to know or might want to know in the background. So we're actually there. Um, A couple firms have done it. And in fact, it's kind of an interesting story. I mean, one of our clients brought us in to sort of do an evaluation of of their statement relative to the competition. When they got a picture from the advisor on the account, got a picture from one of his clients, I think who happened to be a farmer, and he took a year's worth of their statements. And, you know, monthly statement was 40 pages and just stacked them up. And the, the st- pile of papers almost went to the top of this guy's, you know, barn entrance. <laughs> and it was a pretty telling example of the fact that they need to do something. The guy was just, I'm drowning in paper, help me out here. And so the client actually ended up building a, I think, a two-page summary statement that you can, they would mail out and you can choose to opt in to get the rest of it if you want it or go online to get it. And did you get the sense that that farmer had read all of that content or it was just this is where I dump it when it comes in the mail? That would be my guess, yeah. I, I wasn't sure. You know, Maybe it was the advisor trying to help him wade through it. But Right. What other innovations have you seen in the way that companies are communicating with their investors or customers today? They're starting to – well, it's interesting. The advent of sort of AI and big data mm-hmm. – is presenting some interesting opportunities, I think, for clients to reach, for firms to reach out to their clients. We're seeing things recently in chatbots, yep. for example. So, this is more multi-directional communication, mm-hmm. obviously. But client gets on their phone and starts chatting with it. It's actually an automated system that's responding, and right. they're getting more and more sophisticated. It used to be, oh, I see you're trying to ask about new accounts. Click here to learn more. But the responses are getting a little more meaningful. We've seen one firm even use emojis in their responses, you know, and that's all an AI behind the scenes doing it. I don't think they yet get into, you know, the very nitty gritty, obviously, but it's probably only a matter of time. You know, one day you might be talking to Alexa and asking for, you know, going place a trade through her or something like that. Right. And it's amazing how realistic that voice interaction has become. Yeah. How smart the chatbots have become. Yeah. They can really, that first line of triage in a customer service example is actually quite impressive now. And it's a, their capabilities keep getting deeper and deeper, stronger and stronger. Indeed. And I mean, just think about it from the client experience. You've probably been on the phone a lot. You, you, you go, you, you call your credit card company or something like that. You have to enter your social security number, this number, that number, enter a whole bunch of things only to get to an actual human rep who then asks the exact same questions. And so if you can cut all of that out, A, it's going to be a huge cost savings to the company that's doing the support, but it's going to be a better experience for the client too. So on that note, journey mapping, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about, let's say, an onboarding journey? How do you go about that process today if a client came to you and said, can you track a mystery shop, if you will, 
this onboarding journey and then report back on it? Yeah, sure. And we've got a couple ways we can do it. One, we recently brought in, launched a, a UX research business. Mm. And this was kind of the third leg of the benchmarking stool. We, you know, we had the accounts, we were getting, you know, we were looking at what behind the password was going on, but we're very close to everything, our analysts. So we brought in the UX thing to, team to really um, expand that research capability and get true design principles and true sort of journey mapping and, right. and workflow principles in place. So we absolutely have that ability. And you know, the way we would handle is kind of, you know, if, if you're looking at maybe a, a discrete thing might be signing up for a checking account. Mm -hmm. We would be able to just – and you're going to want to do it in a couple different personas, right? You're going to have perhaps a millennial who is very yeah. you know, tech savvy. You're going to, you might have an older Gen X person who you know, can't be bothered with doing the whole thing online. Right. But you bring these different types of personas into play and you set up tasks along the way and you say this is kind of what we want to do. And you don't guide them. You, you let them do it and you follow what's happening. And it's one thing you – know, a lot of times these journey mappings and, and these UX studies are done – from the perspective of the client being the financial company developing a, a new map and they're kind of looking at their own or something like that. Right. What we're able to do is kind of bring the benchmark into it. All right, that's how you guys do it. Now, how's competitor A, competitor B, and competitor C do it? And you can learn a lot in that process. And I think that's where it's so valuable compared to obviously all these companies are doing some form of journey mapping on their own. Mm -hmm. And I've done some of my own journey mapping. And, and I think that the when you have an analyst go through it who's removed from the things that somebody might brush past because they're too close to it, right. you learn a lot about that process. You learn a lot about deficiencies or inefficiencies behind the scenes in terms of separate data silos, not consistently talking to the customer. But then when you overlay, and here's how that experience happens across your competitors, that starts to create a new level of discussion because it's how did they get around having to do it this way because our legal department said that's the only way we could do that. Right. Or that's really interesting for how quickly they're driving paperless adoption because they're just saying that's how we do business. Right. So I think that that's always been a really interesting thing in, in the whole competitive benchmarking space to not just have here's what we found about you apply that to the insight that we have on all of your peers. Yep. And when you have an experienced interviewer leading these journey mapping or these UX projects, they know when to ask the question, well, why did you click on that? You know, what led to, you know, you have an analyst who's used to the websites and they're going to just go through the thing. But when you have an experienced interviewer who can sort of probe on the panelists why they've done something, you can get a whole lot of insights because the consumer doesn't care that your legal department says you've got to do it a certain way, right. you know, and so to be able to pick up one to ask and, and sort of without influencing the outcome is, I think, something that separates firms. And I think it's a fallback often to just say, well, that's how we've always done it. Right. Again, it's easier for somebody to just say that's how it's been done. So that's how we'll continue to do it until they're faced with the reality of all of their peers moving on to this yep. newer, better approach. Just because that's how they've always done it doesn't mean that's where customer expectations are aligning now. If you look three, five, ten years down the road, and let's focus on brokerage accounts and statements, where do you see investor communications going beyond some of the – we've talked about chatbots and some components of it. But do you think the experience will be fundamentally different in the coming years and maybe not three or five but, but ten? Or is it just fine-tuning what we've always done? I think they could be fundamentally different if compliance comes along for the game. 
I can see a world in this 10 years out, you know, where you, you might have more of your interactions with a digital assistant, like an Alexa right. or something like that. You know, it might be, Alexa, can you email me my latest statement or, you know, what's my cash position right now or something along those lines? Like I can really see where that happens. Does a monthly statement go away? I don't know. Maybe the paper form finally does, but I think there's going to be other ways to deliver the pertinent information. Why do you look at your brokerage statement? Well, you want to see how much, what the performance of your account has been. Well, I think they're going to start adding more meaning around that. You know, say, okay, I made 10% this year. Is that good? Well, if the market was up 20, maybe not, you know? So it's starting to, I think with the convergence of, you know, it's kind of digital assistance, AI, and these types of things, the analytics behind what the numbers mean and, and sort of, and then how to actually deliver that information, I think will drastically change. Excellent. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Enjoyed it. I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights, and innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn.